Hello and welcome to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness with myself, Dr. Miriam Francois. To all of our new listeners, welcome. So glad you could join us for another frank discussion around whiteness. What do I mean by whiteness? Well, we take it as a given on this podcast that race is a construct. Racism, however, is very real. Writing in her book, Representing Whiteness in the Black Imagination, the writer and academic Bell Hooks states, searching the critical work of post-colonial critics, I found much writing that bespeaks the continued fascination with the way white minds, particularly the colonial imperialist traveler, perceive blackness and very little expressed interest in representations of whiteness in the black imagination. Black cultural and social critics allude to such representations in their writing, yet only a few have dared to make explicit those perceptions of whiteness that they think will discomfort or antagonise readers. Inspired by Hooks and others, this podcast aims to highlight the whiteness she and many others speak of and to explore the ways in which a better understanding of whiteness might prove important in confronting racism. Now, on today's show, I'm joined by a man whose writings represent a profound challenge to the narrative of whiteness when it comes to self-perception of the, the national self and, of course, the hot topic of immigration. The idea that we in the so-called West are welcoming, hospitable, charitable hosts who are simply overrun by immigrants using illegal means to get to our countries and exploit our generous welfare system. Now, no mention, of course, that within the EU, Sweden and Germany have actually led EU efforts on asylum, with France lagging behind and the UK receiving half the number of asylum cases than even France does. The UK is home to 1% of the world's 29.6 million refugees, with asylum seekers making up a very small percentage of overall migrants to the UK, according to research from Oxford Migration Observatory. And yet today, in the same week, we've heard the UK is falling into the worst recession of any major economy. The question of migrants and refugees is once again back in the headlines. To help me unpick those issues and many more as the UK is sending Royal Navy ships to block migrants from crossing the channel, I'm joined by award-winning writer and author Saketu Mehta. He's an associate professor of journalism at New York University and the author of several incredible books, including Maxim, Maximum City, Bombay Lost and Found, and his most recent book, This Land is Our Land, An Immigrant's Manifesto. Now, for those of you who haven't got a chance to read This Land is Our Land, I can't recommend it enough of the book The New York Times says, in an age of brutal anti-immigrant rhetoric and policy, This Land is Our Land offers a meticulously researched and deeply felt corrective to the public narrative of who today's migrants are, why they're coming, and what economic and historical forces have propelled them from their homes into far, far away lands. What an endorsement. Welcome, Siketa. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Miriam, for having me on your podcast. Thank you. So first question we ask all of our contributors is, what is whiteness to you? What does it mean to you? How do you define it? So for me, um, I, I should explain a bit of my biography. I was born in Calcutta and grew up in Bombay and at the age of 14 was taken by my parents to uh, New York, specifically to uh, the immigrant neighborhood of Jackson Heights in uh, the Queens borough of New York. And I was 
thrown into this all boys, mostly all white Catholic school in which I was among the first minorities, certainly the first Indian. And everyone else around me was white and the teachers were white. Um, and not only was I not white, I was also not Catholic. I was Hindu. Um, I was like meat thrown to the lion. So these were people who all around me were the um, Irish and Polish and German origin kids. Um, and uh, these were working class whites in um, a part of New York that um, was at the time beginning to be extremely diverse. That is, after the 1965 Immigration Act, large numbers of um, Asians, particularly Indians, Chinese, started coming into the US because quotas against Asians were lifted. So basically, the kids that I went to school with, their fathers were really fearful and often highly racist. Mm. Now, Queens, not coincidentally, also happens to be where Donald Trump grew up. Oh, wow. Uh, and Donald, same, Donald, same. Exactly. So Donald Trump also was a German-American kid uh, growing up in Queens. That's why I feel that I understand Trump and what drives him so well, because I went to school with um, mm. people who could be the kids of Donald Trump, people who were uh, had a certain idea of what America should be, basically, you know, it was a white America. And then they saw people like me coming in and challenging them, and they felt threatened, and so they lashed out. I learned to run very fast in those years in that <laughs> terrible school. Um, so for me, <clears throat> that was my introduction to whiteness. It was the first time that I had seen large numbers of white people. And, you know, of course, Many of them were friendly to me. My first friend was uh, a white Irish kid who later um, I learned was uh, uh, not only white, but also in the closet. He was gay. Mm. And uh, we didn't realize it at the time because it, you know, that would have made you an even bigger target of being bullied in that school at the time, uh, being gay. Um, but we became friends, and uh, that was the first time that I actually got to uh, sort of understand white people. And then later on, of course, you know, I went to college and graduate school. And, um, and so in my new book, um, I'm writing about the origins of this kind of imbalance, and mm -hmm. I focused on immigration. Mm -hmm. And, and so on that subject, what do you see as a relationship between whiteness and immigration? So, um, you know, a lot of the what's missing in the uh, global debate around migration and mostly the debate uh, is focused on the wrong part of the equation. So when we think about immigration, we're mostly thinking about immigration from the poor countries to the rich countries or basically the non-Western countries, the non-white countries. Uh, to the white country, even though it could be argued that many of the people who are coming in from Latin America to the U.S. are themselves white in whatever way you uh, might define white. Um, uh, in fact, 85% of global migrants move from a poor to a slightly less poor country. They might move from Syria to Lebanon or Turkey. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but of course, the global debate about migration is, should the, left, uh, should the West, that is, the white countries like the UK, like the USA, uh, should they let in immigrants? Uh, should they let in Nigerians or Indians or Pakistanis or Guatemalans? And how many should they let in? Should they be skilled or, uh, or not skilled? Um, and essentially, uh, a lot of this debate is driven by racism, pure and simple. There's no um, sugarcoating it. Uh, a lot of the opposition to immigration is couched on the idea of a particular idea of Britain or a particular idea of America, which is basically a white Britain, a white Australia, mm. a white America. In fact, the Australians actually had an official policy called the white Australia policy in which only wow. people from white countries were allowed to go there. Um, and in my book, I ask, you know, uh, uh, let's look at migration, not from the viewpoint of the, um, uh, of the Western countries, uh, of the white countries, but let's look at it from the viewpoint of the people who are moving there. Why are they moving? So I begin my book with a story that my grandfather once told me my grandfather was born in India and then he worked in Kenya and then he retired to London. So he was sitting in a park in um, North London one day minding his own business and this elderly white British gent comes up to him and wags a finger in my grandfather's face and he says, why are you here? Why don't you go back to your country? And my grandfather, who was a Gujarati businessman, he said, why are we here? Um, uh, we are here because you came to my country and you took all my gold and my diamonds and you you stole it. And so we have come here to collect. We are here because we are the creditors. So my grandfather wow. essentially was saying we are here because you were there. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the, the statistics bear out what my grandfather was saying. When the British arrived in India at the beginning of the 18th century, India's share of world GDP was 23%. So almost a quarter of the world's total economic output came from India. By 1947, when the British left, under 4% of world GDP came from India. So what does that mean? That the, when the British rule was terrible for India, um, they impoverished uh, the country of my birth. Um, they stole what they could. And then the left, um, having made lousy borders that ensured a state of permanent strife uh, between India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Uh, so when I walk around, um, and you know, this is true for, uh, for um, the colonial powers in general. Uh, during the colonial period, European share of world GDP went from 20% to 60%. So basically, modern Europe was built on the backs of the colonies and slave labor. Um, and so when I walk around London and I look at these, you know, uh, imposing palaces and museums, I feel I should have a room in there. Some part mm -hmm. of that is my heritage. Mm. Um, so it's not just what the colonial powers did when they... Um, ruled over uh, the empire, it's how they left. 40% mm. of all the national borders on the planet have been made by just two countries, Britain and France. And when they left, 
so when the British left um, the subcontinent, they brought down a barrister named Sir Cyril Radcliffe from London, and they gave him six weeks to draw two lines down a map, which now collectively um, hold a billion and a half people. Um, and in these lines, you know, people didn't know which side of the border they were going to be until several days after independence. So all these ethnic groups, uh, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, just fell on each other because there was a large-scale program of ethnic cleansing, and the British did nothing to stop it. Over a million people died in partition. 17 million people had to flee. It was the largest mass migration in human history. Um, and, you know, this, this happened because of the way that the British ruled these countries. Um, one of the viceroys named Lord Elphinstone uh, said, quote, divide et impera was an old Roman maxim and it shall be ours. That is, divide and rule. So they set up separate voting blocks for Muslims and Hindus and what used to be mm -hmm. called untouchables. And, you know, they, the only way they could rule over this enormous area was by splitting up people. So the, the seeds of this kind of um, um, colonial uh, map making and the colonial policies of divide and rule are still with us. And now, you know, two of the, the three countries in the subcontinent are nuclear powers, um, yeah. India and Pakistan. And so for me, whiteness is very personal. It is um, what was done to my country uh, by white people. Uh, and and in the in my immigration book, what I say is that when people move, they're not moving, you know, uh, because they're in love with uh, the Tower of London or they uh, they've read too much Enid Blyton and they want to eat clotted uh, cream teas <laughs> and scones and you know they're moving because they have no choice because colonialism and then what has replaced colonialism is corporate colonialism. Mm. And war and climate change have made it impossible for large numbers of people in um, developing countries uh, to exist in their homes. So they move because they have no choice, because the rich countries have stolen the future of the poor countries. Mm. And, and I mean, listening to you as well, I mean, one of these things is we know that a lot of the facts that you're citing uh, probably are not known to you know many people who are racialized as white here in the UK for example and so a lot of the time in conversations around racism people say well you know racism is ignorance and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that one because part of me wonders whether the racism is ignorance argument doesn't provide a sort of get out of jail free card um, about realities that are not other people's realities. They are our realities as a nation. What, what, what are your thoughts on that one? Can, would you describe whiteness? Is one of the attributes as, of whiteness ignorance? So if you speak to a white British teenager, and, you know, I've lived in Britain. Um, I've, um, my grandfather lived there. I've spent, uh, you know, huge amounts of my time in the UK. And, uh, uh, I really like it there. I think London is one of the great multicultural cities of the world. I love the English countryside. Um, and I've you know, spoken to lots and lots of British people uh, about um, things like 
empire. And I'm just astonished at how little is taught in British textbooks about the history of the empire. If you speak to a British teenager, you know, uh, they might say, look, uh, yeah, you know, my ancestors, my great, great, great grandfather might have gone to Egypt or India or uh, Africa. And um, but I don't have anything to do with that. You know, I'm just trying to live my life and um, study hard and get a job. And so why should um, I be accused of racism? Well, that British teenager is the beneficiary of what their ancestors have done. And and the only way that um, uh, that teenager will actually know about what we've done is if uh, British history textbooks pay more attention to the colonial period. Right now, um, for the average British person, uh, the colonial legacy, you know, if you think about it at all, is things like uh, uh, the movie Passage to India or further back, there was a TV series called The Jewel in the Crown. And both of these um, were these very sepia-toned, nostalgic evocations of the empire where, you know, men wore suits and solar topes and women dressed up in ornate dresses and, you know, had dinner at the Uti club. Um, Salman Rushdie, in an essay, once pointed out that the central incident in the plot of both Passage to India and Jewel in the Crown is the rape of an English woman by an Indian man. And he mm-hmm. says, if anything, the reality uh, of what happened in the colonial period was the mass rape of Indian women by British men. Uh, even now, there are large numbers of Anglo-Indians. Um, and, uh, you know, many of them can trace their parentage to acts of rape by uh, white colonial masters over their um, uh, semi-enslaved populations, just like um, uh, there was a legacy of mass rape um, in the American South. Mm. Um, so, so Rashidi says um, that the central conceit uh, of books and movies and TV series uh, like these um, is wrong. And, uh, and the reason that uh, they feature these rapes of white women is, as you put it, uh, the British fear of the sexually potent other of big brown cocks. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we, which we see with many of the other rise groups. Yeah. So, um, so in my book, I'm just you know uh, uh, trying to sort of trace. It's just cause and effect. Um, who, uh, you know, who went there first? Uh, what is natural justice? I mean, the, the Western countries, the US, the UK, when it comes to asylum or undocumented aliens, you know, people who are uh, who, who rendered desperate uh, and have to flee their homelands and try to get into the rich countries, not to loot or live off um, welfare, uh, but to work and to mm. you know, provide for their families. Um, so they're saying, oh, but you must come here legally. Well, ask yourself this, have the West ever asked anyone's permission to cross their borders? Have, have the Western countries ever gone anywhere legally? 
Mm. During the entire colonial period, the West went where it wanted to, took what it wanted. And now there's, you know, all this sanctimony about, well, if you come here, you must come here legally. <laughs> you know, you got to laugh. Mm. Um, so, uh, and it's not just colonialism. It's things like war. I mean, yeah. the US and the UK under Tony Blair launched an um, illegal and highly destructive war um, in Iraq that cost a million Iraqi lives. Over a million Iraqis died uh, because of Bush and Cheney and Tony Blair. If there was any natural justice in the world today, one million living Iraqis would be allowed the right of residence in the UK and the US. Mm. It's, it's interesting because listening to you um, talk, I, I feel like another aspect of whiteness is something that I might define as like a, a double standard. I don't know whether you would agree with that. So um, a double standard in terms of actions, uh, sta a double standard in terms of uh, expectations. So what I mean by that is like you say, there's obviously this, this idea that, you know, legal invasions, um, legal entry has to be applied to individual migrants, but illegal invasions, you know, oh, well, they're sort of details of history, as it were. Um, and, and, and I wonder where you, if you agree with, with the idea that double standards are part of whiteness, where do you think that comes from? Well, look, history is always written by the victims, right? Uh, so um, uh, now you, you know, if you look at most history books um, in the West, they're heavily biased in favor of um, the ruling class, which um, happened to be uh, until very recently, and now there are promising signs for the horizon, uh, happened to be white. Look, in the U.S., um, the, the, the number that many whites are um, really anxious about is 2044. 2044 is the date by which this country is projected to be a majority minority nation. That is, uh, we will have uh, more Americans will be non-white than white. But then, you know, the whole idea of what is white is um, uh, already under question and um, will be even more dubious by then. I mean, take Obama. Is he half white or half black? Um, Kamala Harris was just um, uh, appointed, appointed as yeah. uh, Joe Biden's um, uh, vice presidential vice, yeah. candidate. So, you know, and all these Indians are celebrating so because Kamala Harris is half Indian, but she's also half black. She's half mm -hmm. Jamaican. Well, so she's half black, but is she half American black? Is she half, um, is she uh, just uh, the daughter of two immigrants? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you look at birth rates, um, the number of uh, interracial marriages are just skyrocketing. So, you know, I think it's a good thing that these barriers uh, between races um, uh, are uh, tumbling rapidly. And particularly as young people engage in this giant choosing. I think there's a giant choosing underway all over the world, um, choosing who to be with. Um, uh, to be with someone of a different race, a different religion, a different gender, a different um, sexual preference, choosing to be alone, 
choosing to change your own gender. Um, it's just, you know, there's all these old categories of what is, uh, um, uh, what if I and what if the other are falling? True. And that's a, that's a, um, that is, I believe, a very trustworthy sign. But of course, that's an enormous resistance to this kind of change, particularly yeah. when it comes to marriage. So right mm. now, I'm in North Carolina, and this is a state where um, it was illegal to marry someone of another race until fairly recently in uh, some states, uh, some southern states, it was illegal, at least on the books, until the 1970s, because there were laws against miscegenation, uh, marrying people of another race. Um, so, sorry, just sorry to interrupt you. Where do you, so where do you think this fear is stemming from? Because I suppose what sounds a bit perplexing is if, if you yourself have been a minority within a white majority, um, uh, how have you experienced the, the white reign, as it were? And is it is it somewhere, because I feel like a lot of the writings around whiteness suggest that part of the fear is a recognition of the harm and brutality that whiteness has imposed on others, you know, and you, you referenced it when we discussed rape, that the idea that you project onto others this fear that they will come and rape you when in fact you yourself have been engaged in that rape. So is, do you think, part of the fear of this demographic uh, switch up, um, the fear that actually, you know, the power, the abuse of power uh, that has been undertaken under this sort of structure of whiteness will now be uh, flipped um, and that the uh, unfair treatment that we've seen inflicted on minorities is now going to be inflicted on white people. Do you think that's at stake here? Is that part of it? Yeah, certainly fear is a huge part of it. Um, there's a wonderful quote from James Baldwin, which I've always turn to for explanations. You know, in, in my high school, I was um, bullied and tormented by these white kids who every night at their dinner tables, their white parents uh, uh, told them uh, how inferior non-white people were to them. Mm. Um, so, you know, I didn't understand it at the time why these people were you know, would be so incredibly unfriendly to a kid like me. I, I was 14 and on my second day in my high school, this um, uh, kid with red hair and freckles comes up to my lunch table and says to me, Lincoln should have never let him off the plantations. And I said, but what's it got to do with me? You know, but I was just the yeah. other. So, you know, it, it, um, it, was, it was an incredibly racist school and I was, well, not just miserable, but also dumbfounded. Why would all these people hate me? What had what had I done to them? Um, and then I came across this quote by Baldwin much later. He says, mm -hmm. "I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Once Indeed. hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. I mean, that just." blew my mind. It, 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 everything made sense then. You know, what do you do if your whole life is filled with hate and you're, you get up in the morning filled with hate uh, and you go through your day and your hate is your energy. It mm. is 
what gets you through the day and at night you go to sleep and you dream hateful dreams about the other what do you do if but that hate gone you just hate? play with pain so, yeah so i what is fueling the hate is it's a mix of things um one is um fears uh, as we've discussed fear that their daughters will bring home a black or brown man um that their position on top of the power pyramid will be replaced that they will be forced to um live like the people that um they have ruled over so long that uh, the equation will be flipped uh, another is um you know what uh, certain religions teach them that there is a hierarchy uh, not of uh, uh, life on this planet at the top are human beings and then all the animals exist to serve the human beings and even among human beings there is a hierarchy and uh, whites are uh, superior to others and you know there's certainly um, some uh, christian sects that teach this as an mm. official um ideology and that's all the, uh, the the apartheid regime was built on a kind of christian theology and of, of course colorism of yeah we know yeah. colorism is is an international phenomenon i mean do you see the colorism that we see pretty much in every society in the world where kind of the, the proximity to whiteness is usually associated with uh you know whether it's higher classes or greater beauty do you think that is all rooted in colonial uh models in colonial modes of thinking well look i mean india is as guilty of um uh worshiping at the this altar of whiteness as any other country um <clears throat> the best selling cosmetic in india is a, a brand which was called until very recently until a couple of weeks ago it was called fair and lovely and yes. uh, fair and lovely is a skin whitening cream if you look at indian marriage ads um uh, often the uh, the parents of the girl being advertised will advertise her fair complexion and if she isn't fair then they'll say she's of wheatish complexion that is wheat colored if the, you know mm. if she if she's dark they'll use a euphemism for darkness so mm. um but you know again it's it's a kind of received racism the reason that indians were taught uh, that white is more attractive is because white for the entire colonial period was more powerful um yeah so power equals beauty mm-hmm. um you know but it's not just racism um and this is something which i, I devote um uh, an entire chapter of my immigration book to exploring there are also working class whites in the uk and the us you know who are suffering just as much as working class um asians and african americans um and it's because their futures too the working class whites have been stolen <clears throat> by the greedy elites um there's been an incredible upward transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich uh not just around the world but also within countries in in, in the west i mean today men all white men um own more wealth than half of the planet combined so after the 2008 financial crisis <clears throat> there were all these working class whites um in industrial regions of 
Europe and the US who were just mad as hell um, because <clears throat> they couldn't, throughout the 20th century, <clears throat> they'd always had a good job and a house and a car, and they assumed that these jobs would be passed on to their children, and that evaporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> there, there was mass unemployment, and if their kids got a job at all, it would be like flipping burgers. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> No worries. Um, <clears throat> so yes, the aspirations so, for your children that they would come through have not manifested for at least one generation, if not more. Yeah, yeah. So so they were mad, and um, and they would have marched on Wall Street and uh, onto the uh, the city in London um, with pitchforks. But the elites, being no fools, knew that the anger of these working class people had to be diverted away from themselves. And who better to divert it onto than the newest, the weakest, the immigrants? Um, so that's what happened in the UK. That's what happened in the US. Uh, there was a mass diversion of populist rage away from the elites and onto immigrants. I mean, the whole Brexit fiasco. Yes, um, I was hoping the, we'd touch on that, yes. Yeah, I mean, the biggest own goal in British history and the, and the single, single biggest reason for that was fear of migrants, which was cleverly stoked mm. by the uh, elites in the country. And as a result, I mean, l- look at the uh, state of the UK now and in the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I say in my book is that the fear of migrants is causing incalculably more damage to Western countries than the migrants themselves ever could. In the US, fear of migrants, of Muslims and Mexicans, led to the election of Donald Trump with his promises to build the wall. And now uh, we elected, because we were afraid of migrants, uh, the most pathetically incompetent president in US history, which Mm -hmm. was demonstrated by his handling of uh, the COVID pandemic. And we right right now have the highest infections and death rates on the planet. And it it just proves my point that the fear of migrants caused much more damage to the U.S. um, Mm. in electing Donald Trump than the migrants themselves ever could have. Yes, I mean, that's an interesting point, because one of the things that I think often comes out in the conversations on immigration is that the idea that somehow anti-immigrant sentiment is coming from the white working class. We always see the blame directed at the white working class, but actually here in the UK, white working class communities tend to be probably more diverse, arguably, than middle or upper class communities. And in addition to that, I would love to put to you uh, the question of whether when we talk about racism or when we talk about those who are upholding structures of whiteness in the UK, are we right to point the cameras at the skinheads, the EDL, you know, the, 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 the football hooligans that are marching outside parliament against BLM? Are they the people that are driving this, in your opinion? I think we should be pointing the cameras towards Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> I mean, these. These people, they're just foot soldiers, they're pawns. You know, I, I, I know these people. They're easily swayed because many of them are stupid and ignorant and they've grown up being beaten to a pulp by their dads. So they're filled with fear and rage, but they're, they're class interests. These are the same people who um, 
could also be marching as um, Antifa people, you know, the same young yeah. white um, man uh, in his late teens or early 20s, you know, who has no future, no job, could be, um, could, could be on the, the anti-fascist side of the equation or could be part of EDL, uh, 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 could be a, a skin and job. Um, it just depends on the kind of the diet of information that he consumes. Um, but, uh, you know, Murdoch with um, his uh, papers in the UK and uh, with Fox News in the US um, and his enablers, you know, all the billionaires that are funding these media outlets, that are funding these political parties. These are the people who have um, diverted the rage of the white working class uh, away from the billionaires and on to Muslims and migrants. And it's really diabolical. Um, but Hannah Arendt talks about it um, in uh, her work and uh, examining why it is that the Holocaust happened. And she calls it the alliance between the mob and capital. And the same sort of thing happened in pre-war Germany. There was an aristocracy, there was a business elite that, um, um, it, and it wasn't the Jews, the Jews were the middlemen. Um, and so they diverted the anger of the working class uh, after the depression in Germany um, away from themselves and onto the Jews. And they were the enablers uh, of, uh, of the Nazis um, and of Hitler. And the same sort of thing is happening now. I mean, you know, Trump's biggest backers are billionaires like the Mercers and Paul Singer. Um, although that may be changing this election if they realize they're betting on a losing horse. Um, mm. So, you know, it's, it's said, it, I, I don't entirely blame the working class. Certainly when you're being attacked by one of them, it's easy to blame them, but you've got to look at how they've also been hoodwinked and their class interests of the white factory worker or the laid off person uh, in a uh, small town, uh, their class interests are the same as the uh, uh, immigrants living in the cities. Um, it, and the, the problem is that they don't know each other. Most of the people who voted for Brexit were white English people living in the rural areas who don't yes. have everyday um, lived experience of immigrants. Most of the people who voted to stay in the EU were in places like London where, you know, every day you see that whoever you are, white or black or brown, you're all working and you're working hard and you're mm -hmm. not out there to rob and steal and rape. The same thing in the US. Most of the people who vote for Donald Trump are in the rural areas. So, you know, we have also to look at the whiteness debate as an urban rural divide. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, where I am in North Carolina, it's really interesting. Um, it's a state which is on the cusp. Uh, uh, it's a swing state. So the cities of North Carolina are filled with immigrants. The city of Greensboro, which is an hour from me, is now a majority a minority city. Um, but uh, in, in the farming area, right now in the city of Pittsburgh, where I live, there's a giant Confederate flag on the main street. But in front of it is also a giant Black Lives Matter sign. Interesting. So that perfectly symbolizes the changing America.
Mm. So, I mean, listening to you speak as well, I'm reminded of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about whiteness. One of the reasons I began this podcast was because I felt that conversations around racism sort of always um, cordoned off racism as something that those sort of bad extremist people do on the fringes. And again, usually pointing at, you know, the white working class, you know, skinheads and that like. But actually, when we flip the structure and we, you know, we flip the conversation to look at structures and we talk about whiteness rather than racism, do you feel like that might allow us a window into looking perhaps at those who have most at stake in sustaining uh, racist structures, hierarchies of human value? So, um, you know, I understand the use of the term whiteness and uh, uh, the political need for such a term, but sometimes I must admit I'm a little uncomfortable when, for example, stand-up comedians get up and say white people this, white people that. You know, I don't feel that we non-whites or half-whites or quarter-whites should fall into the same trap uh, mm. of defining a whole class of people by the color of their skin. Um, you know, it, it's it's really complicated. As I said, you know, Obama, you know, if uh, is he half white or half black? Um, right. In so, America, he's definitely black, I think. But um, yeah. Yeah, but you know, he he was raised mostly by his very his white, white mother. Yeah. Um, and he, he also is part Indonesian because he had uh, an Indeed. Indonesian stepfather. He, so you know, we are all individually multiple right now. Um, yeah. And um, and I think maybe a better way to understand what's happening is is class uh, not so much color that is um, to understand the economic forces that are keeping some people in power and most of the rest out of power both economic and political power and this is where all of us you know white brown black whatever color um, we we can come together uh, to ensure a more equal world for all of us, or of whatever color. Of course, it is true that some people, just by uh, virtue of being white, you know, even if they're of the same class, um, have more built-in benefits. If they walk into a room, um, they will be uh, considered as less of a threat. If they're walking down the street, they won't be stopped by a cop just because the color of their skin is white. Yeah. You know, this must be acknowledged. Yeah. You know? But at the same time. Um, um, I would hesitate uh, in considering uh, people, including white people, uh, as a, a kind of homogenous group uh, to be feared and hated. Of course, yeah. Um, so, I mean, on the subject then of, of kind of the, the division of the working class, because I think there's a lot of um, conversations, particularly here in the UK, about the extent to which the conversation on race could be a distraction from uh, otherwise what would be regarded as shared interests. And actually, I always say when people say to me, well, where does race come into it? If you've got a working class black man and a working class white man who, you know, got exactly the same economic situation. And I say the difference is one man's facing an extra barrier called racism. So, you know, sure, shared circumstances, but there are, as, as you rightly mentioned, some additional barriers that, that are faced because of race. I mean, do we do we think that um, that the class interest can uh, or class based solidarity overcome 
um, the divisions that have been forged by racism? I mean, how do you, I suppose part of the reason that I wanted to focus on whiteness was because I felt that focusing on racism kept putting the onus on minorities to uh, not only raise issues around, uh, you know, racism, racist discrimination, but also come up with the solutions, whereas maybe a focus on whiteness or as, as a structure, structural whiteness, the structures of power that uh, dominate our, our, our white dominated societies might push the onus onto people who are racialized as white to sort of say, well, we actually have a stake in these structures and, and we probably are part of what is sustaining and maintaining them. And so if we're serious about equality, you know, we, we need to, you know, put our finger out as well. Right. So what I'm arguing for is uh, class consciousness, class solidarity with a historical consciousness. I'm arguing for a lifting of this historical amnesia. It's not an accident um, that um, the white countries became so powerful. They went all over the world and they pillaged and looted. Um, and, and if you know, the white working class in these countries today are inadvertently uh, the beneficiaries of this pillaging and looting. Um, they have an easier time going around the world. They, you know, they do have a higher share in uh, uh, responsibility for what's afflicting the planet, including things like climate change. Um, you know, the United States put in one third of the excess carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, Britain and uh, European countries, another quarter of the excess carbon in the atmosphere. And as a result, large sections of the world, particularly some of the poorest countries, um, have been blighted. Uh, over a billion people um, will have to flee their homes by the middle of the century. Um, and I think there needs to be some sort of um, acceptance of responsibility. Uh, so I'm calling for immigration as reparation. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in the U.S., people are calling for reparations for slavery, uh, and I'm calling on a worldwide scale for immigration as reparations for colonialism, corporate colonialism, war, and climate change. Um, mm. And and so it's just, you know, it, it, it's about connecting the dots. It's about realizing why you, if you're a white person and you walk into an office, you're, uh, you have a built-in advantage. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, uh, you don't come from the same financial circumstances as a black person who's also applying for that job. But it's just realizing that you do have some built-in advantages. And, you know, affirmative action, um, some sort of reparations is just unnecessary. Uh, in India, we have a history with this. So... Um, in India, of course, we have grotesque uh, inequality, and it's based on caste. So the majority of the population is lower caste, and uh, Dalit were uh, people who used to be called untouchables. And they're only now, after the end of British rule, coming into power. For 4,000 years of Indian history, the upper castes held sway over the lower castes. So in the four southern states of India, there was a massive program of um, positive discrimination or affirmative action or whatever you want to call it against the, the Brahmins. Um, 
in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, there were quotas for the lower caste, for university admission, for government jobs. And, you know, it, it hurt a lot of um, middle class and poor Brahmins. And, you know, um, it was uh, a Brahmin had to have much higher marks to get into university than a non-Brahmin. Uh, and, and that might have been unfair to the individual Brahmin student, but on a societal scale, it lifted an entire generation of uh, people who had been kept out of political and economic power. And of course, the work isn't complete, but um, the southern states are much more equal than the northern states. And as a result, they've prospered economically as more people have been brought into political and academic and economic power. And the same thing should be happening in the UK and the US. Um, mm. There needs to be um, affirmative action on a massive societal scale, not just to remedy historical injustices, but to create a better future for all our people. Mm. And, and I mean, in your, in your book, you make a, a really interesting point about the, the value that migrants have made to societies that they come to right and i think any people who uh, look at you know the the kind of traditional uh, british dishes uh, would would struggle to argue that our you know the, the culinary palate hasn't been enriched by the contribution of uh, of migrants to this country but i do also wonder whether there is a danger in having to sell the idea of migrants so that we then end up in a situation where the value of some people is based on, you know, quanti quantifiable measures like, you know, you're, you're now in a way we have to sell the idea of migrants and, and, and migrants, you know, it's not slavery in the form of buying people um, for a certain price, but it's now allowing people in if they're contributing a certain price. Um, and and I'm just wondering whether we have to make an economic um, argument for migration or is there another way to approach this question? Well, look, uh, the, the whole debate around migration is, you know, when people like migrants like Canada and Australia and the UK, they're saying, sure, send us your doctors, send us your uh, programmers. Um, no, you don't get to have it that easy. Um, you know, it, it's not just uh, the skilled labor uh, from these countries who educated their um, doctors and programmers at great cost to these countries. You don't Indeed. just get to skim the uh, cream off the top. Um, I am saying uh, that you owe it to these countries to let their people in because their present plight is as a direct result of your invasion, your continued meddling in their affairs. Um, that uh, it, it's essentially migration as reparations, um, that there is a, an enormous historical injustice that was perpetrated. And mm -hmm. one of the ways that can be set right is by allowing in people from these countries, both skilled and unskilled, uh, as a matter of natural justice. And when you do that, everyone benefits. It's a win-win for all. It's a win for the rich countries because they're just not making enough babies. Birth rates across the Western world are falling. Um, 
And so there are all these old people um, who don't have enough young people working to pay for their pensions. And uh, people in their own countries aren't making enough babies to ensure uh, a sufficient supply of working age people. So the only way that the pensions can be kept afloat, the social security in the US, for example, is by letting in more immigrants. And where are these immigrants going to come from? Well, they're going to come from um, you know, the, the, the former colonies. And so when they come, it's a win-win for everyone. It's a win-win for the countries that they go to. It's a, certainly a win for the migrants, um, particularly the ones that are fleeing war or climate change. And it's a win for the countries that they move from because remittances, the money that uh, people send back to their countries. Last year, uh, remittances amounted to $550 billion. And this is money that wow. people send back in five pound, 10 pound increments to mm -hmm. uh, a village in Ghana, to a village in Mexico, to a mother for her medical treatment, to her sister for her school fees. It's money that bypasses governments and government corruption. And it's the best and most targeted way to help the global poor, much more so than foreign aid, which generally goes into the pockets of the local um, generals and kleptocrats. Last year, remittances amounted to four times more than all the foreign aid on the planet. This was money sent by the poor uh, migrants um, in the rich countries to uh, their families in uh, the countries that they left behind. Uh, so everyone benefits through migration. Mm. And migration has been a fact of human history all uh, throughout our history as a species. We have always migrated like birds. It's only uh, since the early 20th century that this whole system of passports and visas and borders um, came into being. And it's unnatural and it's not God-given. Mm. And and uh, final, final note, um, do you feel that I mean, I mean, are you hopeful, I guess I should say, that we can overcome the whiteness of our conversations around migration? Um, I mean, you make a strong case for it in your book, of course. I, I think so. I think uh, that we can, uh, you know, uh, overcome, um, well, these ideas about immigration, whether they're based on whiteness or um, uh, cultural superiority, which is another reason people keep up borders, or economics. We deal with it by talking about it, by connecting the historical dots. We deal with it by um, casting sunshine in dark corners. And we do it uh, uh, through truth. You know, all these people, whether it's Boris Johnson or Trump or Putin or Modi or Duterte, what are they? They're populists. And what is a populist? A populist is essentially a gifted storyteller, someone who can tell a false story well. And the only way he can be fought, the reason I wrote this book, is by telling a true story better. And we have truth on our side. You know, we, uh, uh, we, we immigrants, um, uh, we, uh, people who, who are fighting uh, against uh, racism, against ignorance, you know, we do it uh, 
because we have truth on our side and we have to learn to tell the truth better we have mm. to tell the truth but in a way that is compelling to everyone white and non white mm. thank you thank you for for that and for for a lovely uh, end note to that conversation um i want to uh, thank all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of we need to talk about whiteness um there is so much more um on this incredible topic um in uh, Suketu Meta's book which i have to recommend you all go out and purchase it's called this land is our land an immigrant manifesto and what i do at this point Suketu is i um ask my guest if there is a preference in terms of where you like people to purchase your book because not everybody uh likes um their book to be purchased off say amazon not singling out amazon but just saying there might be there might be another platform do you have a preferred platform where people could purchase your book yes it is it's called a bookstore <laughs> if you have a local independent bookstore or even if you have a chain bookstore it doesn't matter you know if you realize it's difficult to go to a bookstore but many of these bookstores now uh, you can uh, order online you know it, please do it through a bookstore i love bookstores i grew up among bookstores I, you know i love going in there and smelling the books and being surrounded by books uh, or just supporting these people who are working there mm-hmm. so if you can actually get my book and it's you know widely available at uk bookstores um if you can uh, get it through that even though it might cost a little bit more than if you get it online uh, you will be doing uh, the bookstores and all the people who work there and me a favor Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you again, everyone, for listening uh, to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. More episodes coming very soon. And if you're enjoying them, please share them with your friends and do rate them. We'll be back very soon with the next episode. Have a great day.